you because we're talking about a subject today that is really controversial. In fact, the teaching of evolution has permeated almost every discipline of life. It's affected everything. And so I don't know how many of you had evolution taught to you in school, uh, but uh, I know all the younger people did. And uh, some of us were blessed enough to uh, have been taught by someone who knew something about the Bible and, and real truth. Uh, earlier, and, and we were taught in creationism. But let's go ahead and watch this from a scientist. Stephen Taylor is professor of physical electronics at Liverpool University. As well as lecturing, he's also deeply involved in research and design, in particular the miniaturization of mass spectrometers used in security, medical and environmental applications. But that's not his only passion. At the age of 57, he's also a man with a mission to show that science, far from being an enemy of Christianity, is its friend. How he came to this conviction is a story which began when he was a teenager. This is the Liverpool skyline, one of the most famous in the world. I was brought up here, I lived most of my life here. The river's got a lot of memories for me. I remember being fascinated as a small boy, looking at the size of the ropes and the chains that would pull the Mersey ferries in to the harbour. I've always been interested in science and making things, uh, building things, fixing things, repairing things, whether it's bikes, whether it's uh, trying to build radios. When I was about uh, 14 or 15, I think I'd rejected the idea of God and would have called myself an atheist. I remember a conversation with my bigger brother, and he asked me the question, well, if you're an atheist, you believe in matter before mind. He said, I don't believe in that. For this universe must have had a mind before matter. Well, I didn't say anything at the time, but actually I found that argument completely convincing. There must be someone behind the design and order that we see in the universe. And at that point, I think, I abandoned any atheism and became one, who was the, one of those who was searching for God. What helped me to faith in Christ was to see people of my age who'd come to a personal faith in the risen Christ and who'd clearly changed their lives in a big way. And I was very impressed with this. I remember coming to a point where I prayed a prayer to ask Christ to forgive me for my sins and to come into my life and to be my personal saviour. Immediately, my life changed. I had an inner peace and an assurance that I was right with God. The big issue, almost immediately afterwards, was, well, how can I believe in the Bible and be a scientist? I mean, after all, hasn't science disproved the Bible? Hasn't it shown that, uh, that we've all evolved over millions of years from ape-like creatures. The Bible speaks about Adam and Eve. This was a real issue for me. How that was resolved was that uh, I met a Christian who was a scientist, who was further on than I. He was actually a medic at Oxford, four grade A's. And um, as a student there, he was able to show me that really there's no conflict between proven factual science and the biblical account. But actually, there's a lot of scientific facts which don't stack up with uh, those who would take 
an atheistic position on the science. Atheism is actually illogical in my view. Uh, what we're saying here, the naturalistic worldview, nothing plus no one equals everything. Now that's an unscientific, unproven philosophy. And that shouldn't be taught as science. And we should teach students at school to think critically about that which is taught to them in science lessons. I find no conflict between any proven fact of science and what I read in the Bible. And I find actually that uh, the things that I see around me, the things that I discover, the order, the fine-tuning of the universe, all of these things point to me, to a master designer who put it all together. Once was a 22-year-old man who wanted to be a minister, but he set sail instead in December of 1831 <clears throat> on a five-year voyage. He, mir- he veered way off course. He was the son of a country doctor and kept his Bible nearby throughout his travels to remind him of his past, and yet by the journey's end, five years later, he didn't deny there was a God, but he often referred to God in his writings, in fact. But he was convinced that if God had anything to do with life around us, it was an incidental thing and nothing direct. God may have set things in motion, he thought, but he had, from that point, pretty much left things alone. The young man's name was Charles Darwin. 180 years later, his book, The Origin of the Species, revolutionized the educational system, impacting probably every area of study that there is. And Darwin's work established a naturalist framework that minimized and ultimately banished the idea of God's influence in our founding, in our origins. So why do I believe in supernatural creationism as opposed to naturalistic evolution? You realize that multiple volumes have been written on this. We have a whole creation science research uh, museum over in El Cajon or in Santee, actually. Uh, We have uh, all kinds of uh, authoritative scientists who have written dispelling the theory and the idea of evolution. So why in the world would I devote some time to preach on it this morning? Three reasons. One, to, to reinforce in everyone's mind here that to believe in creationism is not ignorant. Secondly, uh, to whet your appetite for further and deeper study, Fitz Lee in his uh, apologetics class at 8.45 on Sunday mornings it goes into much more depth. The, the Thursday night film that we saw in Mission Valley is Genesis History. It was a super in-depth uh, refutation of evolution, the idea and the notion of evolution, and was much in support of creationism. And it will be shown, theoretically, I think, again, March the 2nd and March the 7th. You need to check. I put it on Facebook. And so check that and see if you can get to it. So the second reason is to whet your appetite for the study. You are not some kind of a kook if you believe that God created everything. The third reason is to equip you to be able to give an answer to everyone of the hope that lies within you. To, to not sit back and wonder, is the Bible archaic? Is the Bible no longer well, maybe it never was right. I, I mean, maybe, you know, I, I've heard people say the Bible is not a science book. And I guess depending on how you want to define that, that's true. But when the Bible talks about science, it is perfectly 
believable and accurate. It's science falsely so-called that is a problem. With Darwin's subsequent book, The Descent of Man, the teaching of evolution became the arch enemy of creationism in particular and, as a result, an enemy of God. How quickly the United States of America went from the 1925 uh, Scopes Monkey Trial, which outlawed the teaching of evolution in our schools, how quickly we went from that to the 2005 court ruling where in our schools in the United States of America, we can't even bring up intelligent design. And intelligent design is kind of, uh, you know, is a big step down from a creator God. To deny creationism is called true science today, while affirming creationism is simply old-fashioned, outdated, and irrelevant religion, and nothing more. So has science, I ask you this question, has science made it impossible to still believe in creation? Are we a, the product of a mighty God or a muddy glob? Are we made in God's image or mud in God's absence? That's the question. Evolution, one definition is simply this, the idea that over many generations of life, through random mutations and natural selection, species adapt to their environment. The fittest survive and the less fit go extinct. And Darwin even applied this theory to the origin of life, concluding that living creatures evolved from lifeless matter. The evolutionist worldview then is purely naturalistic. Nature to them can be capitalized because it is their God. The Christian's worldview is distinctly supernaturalism. And in that, there are at least three different schools of thought that, that, uh, that come to my mind. First of all, the creationist who believes that we were here because of God's special creation. Secondly, the evolutionist, who believes that we're here through the natural process we talked about a moment ago. Thirdly, the theistic evolutionist, who is totally unnecessary. The theistic evolutionist says, well, God created the original matter and then left everything to itself, and it kind of evolved from that point on. That, that's, it is, in fact, as wrong as is the teaching of evolution. I hope to demonstrate that to you in just a few minutes. So what does God have to say about the origin of life? If we take Genesis chapter 1, the first verse of which the kids uh, went over uh, and reviewed just a few moments ago, and we begin to break it down, I want to do this very quickly for you. Uh, I want you to notice that in Genesis chapter 1, there is no mention of some kind of primordial soup or random selection, or, uh, random mutations rather, or natural selection, or thousands of years, or millions of years at all. There's none of these, none of these things referenced. In the, on the first day, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and morning were the first day. That's the first day. In the beginning, the beginning of creation, not the beginning of God. What is the beginning of? It's the beginning of creation, not the beginning of God. God has always been. By definition, God always has been. In the beginning, God, God literally means here strong, mighty. It's the expressive, omnipotent God, by the way, in plural form. So already, 
In the very first verse, we have a veiled reference to the Trinity. In the beginning, God Almighty, God strong in the plural form, created, not made from pre-existing material. This pulpit was made from steel, which was uh, wrought from the ore and and manufactured and and formed and fashioned and painted. God didn't need anything to make the heavens and the earth. God spoke into existence heaven and the earth, our entire universe. You say, that's a giant leap of faith. Yes, nothing compared to something I'll share with you in a minute. The earth was without form and void. The the earth was emptiness, so he he created this earth and and the universe, and then the Spirit of God moved upon it, literally brooded over it like a mother bird incubating and hatching her eggs. The Spirit of God descended upon the creation and began to do what only he could do. And the Bible says God said, literally, it means he willed, he decreed, he appointed, And the determining will of God created all that is around us in immediate results. He divided the light from the darkness. He allowed the light somehow to break through whatever clouds or darkness prevailed in that original uh, burst of creation that he did. And, And it refers to the rotation of the earth on its axis. You have light and darkness. You have day and night. And the first day from sunset to sunset was the way the Jews still measure time. Uh, One day it begins at, I think it's 6 p.m. on on, on, on the evening and goes till 6 p.m. the next day. So here it was, the night and and the day were the first day. Folks, this is not some random period of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of years. It was light, light and darkness, day and night. 24-hour days. So far at this point, in the first five verses of Genesis, we have at some point in time past an omnipotent God in three persons wrought forth out of nothing everything that is, and the Holy Spirit organized it, separating day from night by his own will and decree, and simultaneously included in creation were time, matter, and space. Where do we see that? Well, time was insinuated in the beginning. Time was created. Time wasn't created for God. It was created for us. Matter was created, the earth and and, and everything. Space was provided, the heavens. That was the first day. It was a big day. It was a really busy day, huh? Second day, in verses 6 through 8, he talks about a, a firmament. And I used to read that when I was a kid, and I used to say, firmament, I thought somehow that's earth, that's firm, that's foundational. It's not at all what it means. It means an expanse or an atmosphere. So God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Now, that's a little, what does that mean? And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. So this expanse was created and separated waters above, waters below, and that expanse is our atmosphere on the earth. It's that space between the waters above, waters below. What are the waters above? This is possibly a reference to what many creation scientists believe was a water canopy that encapsulated the entire earth at one time and that filtered out harmful UV rays, thus prolonging lifespans. We, we read about, well, people live to be 600, 700, 800. That's not possible, preacher. Well, pardon me, but the Bible says they did, and I believe that they did. And I believe that God 
somehow maybe through that water canopy and through the fact that there was, uh, there was not, uh, sin has a progressive effect and, and, uh, and lifespans were lengthened and they were dramatically shortened after what event? The universal flood. Dramatically shortened. Went from six, seven, eight hundred years automatically down to like 130, 140, 150 years of age. So, Longer lifespans. Guess what? People worry about the dinosaurs. Guess what species continues to grow no matter how old they get? Reptiles. They continue to grow bigger no matter how. They don't get a certain spot and quit growing longer or taller or whatever else. And so when human life was, uh, was uh, times six, seven, eight, nine, <clears throat> so was reptile life times six, seven, eight, or nine. And there could be some pretty massive reptiles, and there were. There was also a well-controlled universal climate with no rain, no windstorms, no polar ice caps. That's why we find mastodons with grass, with grass still in their mouths that were <laughs> fast frozen uh, when this event occurred, this worldwide event occurred. And you can find those up in the north where there is no vegetation right now, up in the cap, ice caps and so on. No rain, which the Bible verifies. No storms, no tornadoes, no hurricanes. A universal climate, no polar ice caps. That was the second day. Third day, verses 8 through 13, and and let me just summarize these. The waters were gathered. Now, on the face of the earth, there were the waters, and the waters were gathered, forming oceans, lakes, rivers, streams, and so on, and dry land appeared. Let the earth then bring forth of this dry land, the, the trees, the plants, the grasses sprung up all in a single day. That film that we saw Thursday indicated that and showed a, a uh, photography that was kind of like, um, what, do you, what do you call that when it's time-lapse type? And so the, the plants grew quickly, and, and they all grew within one day. So well, that's not possible. Again, depends on how powerful your God is. We talked about this a few minutes ago with Nick. I said, you know, uh, one of the most impressive things about that film was where it began uh, with all these huge canyons and uh, and it looked like, you know, something like it wasn't the Grand Canyon, but I, I didn't know. At first, he didn't say where it was, but he said, you know, you would think or geologists would say this took, this took uh, tens of thousands of years to form, and yet it formed within a matter of hours and days after Mount St. Helens. Huge canyons. And Nick said, you know, couldn't God, who's, who's God, couldn't he create the Grand Canyon if he wanted to in an instant? Yeah, I kind of think so. And in fact, I said, you know, uh, how old was Adam when he was created? And did he have a belly button? Uh, you know what? He was a mature individual when God created him. I don't know how old he was. He was one day old, but he, he was a mature individual. I don't think he had a belly button. But any rate... God could create the earth with the appearance of age. He could do that with maturity. But the plants grew up in one day, and they could only, this is key, they could only reproduce what they were. They had their seeds within them. And one of the, one of the things I read, or there's so much material on this, and in studying for this and trying to reduce it all down to something that I could present in one sermon, uh, one of them talked about the problem with GMO, genetically modified organisms, is that it, it, it overrides what God said. We're supposed to eat the fruit and vegetables that have their seed in them. 
And so, um, got my attention. They could only reproduce what they were. The fourth day, in verses 14 through 19, the light's in the firmament. Wait a minute, there was already light. God allowed the light in the day to pierce through whatever clouds, darkness, whatever atmospheric situation that they had. However, he made them visible. The stars, the sun, and the moon become visible for the first time in verses 14 through 19. There are two great lights. There was a great light uh, compared to the faraway stars. It was a great light. Uh, To rule the night, that's what we call the moon. The moon looks a whole lot bigger than stars and suns, which which absolutely would dwarf the moon. I mean, there's no comparison. We know that through telescopes. But to look up in the sky and to see, to see stars light years away and then to see the moon, you would think that's a greater light. And then a, a even greater light, the sun to rule the day. Now, it's interesting here that the word that God made these lights was not the word that he used in Genesis chapter 1 when he created from nothing, which I think is bora. He created out of nothing. This is, he made these. In other words, he, he, from that which was already formed, he allowed this and made it to appear. The fifth day, verses 20 through 23, we have moving creatures in the water. I suppose that would include all of the uh, sea life, animal life in, in the waters. We had fowl or the birds of the air. The sixth day, in verses 24 through 31, we have the cattle or animals capable of labor and and domestication. We have beasts, the wild animals. We have creeping things, insects, no doubt, spiders, snakes maybe, after the garden, (laughs) before the garden. I, 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 I think, well, yeah, I think they could walk before the garden. I'll just tell you that much. Let us make man in our image, the crowning of creation, to rule. That was the purpose. In our image, after our likeness, we have mind, will, and emotions. We have body, soul, and spirit. We are trinities, and we're to have dominion over the rest of creation. Man is distinct and preeminent among all of God's creation. And the problem is today, the problem we've come to is it's save the whales and kill the babies. We've come a long way. Man is not an animal. And when I'm talking mankind, men, women, we are not animals. We are the crowning of God's creation. We're to have dominion over it. I, I love, and by the way, I, don't, I cannot even hardly look on Facebook when someone's abusing an animal. I can't hardly look at it. I don't, I don't want to look at it. I, I don't think we should be that kind of people at all. I don't think we should abuse animals. They're part of God's creation. But animals are animals, and human beings are in the image of God. God's breath and spirit was imputed to mankind. God breathed into his nostrils and became a living soul. That living soul died in Genesis chapter 3 and has to be born a second time. That's what the rebirth is all about. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And when God did all of that in six days, he, he, he stood back, stepped back, and looked at it all and said, it is very good. That's creation. The seventh day in chapter 
2, verses 1 through 3. And by the way, there shouldn't be a chapter break there. You know that the chapter breaks were not inspired by God, right? You know the chapter breaks were put there later on so that we could reference the Word of God. And, and you know, otherwise it'd be kind of tough. If, you, if I were preaching somewhere in Isaiah and there were no chapters and verses, you'd be like, where, where is he? And you'd have to just... So, they, so the chapters and verses are there for a reason. But sometimes... They are not in very opportune places, and they create a little confusion. So this just flows. He talks about, again, in recapping the heavens, the firmament, the atmosphere. He talks about the host, which usually is a term in the Hebrew that refers to the stars of the sky, the heavenly bodies here, referring to the heavens and the earth and all that was contained and created therein. And he said that that was all finished. They were brought to completion And this is key, I believe, because since they have been brought to completion, there have been no new species, no new laws of nature added or repealed. And then the Bible says he rested on the seventh day because he was really tuckered out. Not really. He rested on the seventh day, but we know that God wasn't tired because, for example, well, we know he's omnipotent for one thing, but in Isaiah 40, 28, have you ever heard, have you never understood the Lord is everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows weak or weary. He never gets tired. But he rested on the seventh day as an example to his creation, as an example to you and me. I told you this, I think, already once, but it it just drove this point home to me that I worked in a steel processing plant when I was uh, in college. In summers, I would work there, even in high school, too. I worked there for three or four months a year. And we had a a big demand for production, so uh, they decided we worked uh, nine-hour days, six days a week. And they decided we're going to work seven days a week, nine hours a day. Would you like to guess what happened to productivity? It went down. With more time, we didn't produce as much and as good a quality. We went back to six days a week, nine-hour days, and the production went back up again. We need, we're so designed that we need that rest, folks. We need that break from the routine. And he blessed and sanctified the seventh day. And the cessation of the routine and the expended effort of work was to cease on the seventh day. It's to be a day of rest. It has come to mean a day of worship, but I, I want to I suggest to you that that's not accurate, that worship is to be every day. We are to worship God every day. When we rise in the morning, we ought to thank God for being with us through the night, taking care of us. When we go through our duties, we ought to never cease being in an attitude of prayer and pouring our hearts out to God and thanking God and asking God and talking to God. And I mean, it ought to be a continual thing, our, our, our offerings to him, our sacrifices to him, our praises to him. That's to be seven days a week and in the temple and in the tabernacle before that, the offerings were offered every single day. But the Sabbath was a day of rest. The Sabbath was the seventh day. It was a day of rest, and there's a big difference. And then it says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. This is the historic and accurate account of their creation. And and this history came to Moses not from a scientist, but from God Almighty. 
So that's what the Bible says about it. Let's see some problems with the evolutionist's position. First of all, I want you to know it is not a universally accepted theory by all scientists. You, you saw a video of one scientist who disagrees, and there are literally thousands upon thousands of scientists in the United States of America who are creationists or believe in intelligent design who do not believe in evolution as, as defined a little while ago. There's a problem with life springing out of nothing. Let me back up a little bit. There's a problem with anything coming out of nothing. Especially, and I think I'm getting ahead of myself here, especially with the naturalist. Not, it's not Ill, illogical or irrational for a supernaturalist. You say to an evolutionist, you, you know, you believe in a Big Bang, but where did everything come from that created the Big Bang? They say, and, and they stumble around, they, say, they maybe say some things, and you say, well, no, where did that come from? Where did the original material, where did the original whatever come from? And they say, well, you don't have the answer to it either. And I say, yes, I do. Almighty God. Bingo. I mean, I start with a almighty power who says he did this, and I believe that he did that, and, and, and an almighty power by definition can do that. But then where does the naturalist get off saying anything came from nowhere and nothing? That's a problem for the naturalist, not for the supernaturalist. And in fact, I've got two pages of calculating on, on one reference book, two pages, full pages, calculating the chances mathematically of life spontaneously coming into being out of matter, let alone if you didn't have matter. But let's go back up and say you've got matter floating around out there. And, and so, and I have no idea if this is right. I don't even understand. I quit when I got to calculus. I absolutely said, you know what, this is, I think the Antichrist made this stuff up, and, the cal- and I had nothing to do with cal- But But it basically, after two pages of trying to explain all of these numbers to me, says that the, the possibility of life coming into existence from non-living matter is 10 to the 200 and I think 55th power against. That number is insane. That's 10 times 10. That's to the... Then there's 10 times, then there's 100 times 10, then there's 1,000 times 10. 255 times you do that. There's a problem, logically, with life springing out of nothing. There's a problem with where did the original matter come from that you have to have to say that life came from that inert matter. Then there's a problem with the continual formation of new genetic material. DNA is so complex that a random appearance simply cannot happen. And and one of the scientists said in Darwin's day, the origin of life was a very easy problem. Life was basically a little blob of jello enclosed by a membrane. That was a cell. It would have been very easy for it to come about by spontaneous generation. Darwin knew nothing about molecular biology. Nowadays, the simplest cell is more complicated than any human artifact. It is a miracle 
a marvel rather, his word. It is a marvel of miniaturization and engineering that is going on in the cell. Darwin had no concept of this. Why should we think that his theory can account for this new body of facts? And that's Dr. William Dubinsky, professor and author, intelligent design expert. Then there's a problem with human ancestors. Anyone here heard of missing link or missing links? One of my favorite places to go when I was in school, growing up in the south Chicago, south suburbs of Chicago, was to go to the Natural History Museum. I loved the section on, on Egypt and all of that stuff and the mummies. I loved uh, going to the, you know, see the dinosaurs and all that. In fact, you walk right in into the lobby. It used to, I'm, I'm sure it still does, has a huge uh, dinosaur skeleton right there. And then you go into the exhibit that showed the evolution of our human ancestors. There's only one problem with that. The evolutionary line is non-existent. There are three categories of fossil records cited. There are those that when they figure it all out, they are really all ape fossils. There are secondly those that are all human And thirdly, there are fakes, lies, fantasies, where a tooth called for the construction of this weird half-animal, half-human individual based on a tooth or a skull cap or a rib and a whole lot of imagination. Dwayne Schmidt. Darwinist expert says none of these depicted images in all of those museum displays and textbook drawings can be backed up by even one example in the fossil world. How much anti-evidence does it take to overcome evolutionist rhetoric and bluster? There's a problem with the missing links in other species as well. There are none. Despite being an evolutionist, now this is a quote from Jeffrey Schwartz, an evolutionist, professor of anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh, and he says, the formation of a new species by any mechanism has never been observed. And scientist N.A. Takahata seems to put the nail in the coffin when he concludes, we have no direct access to the processes of evolution, so objective reconstruction and vanished past can be achieved only by creative imagination. And that's what you see in the museums. And that's what you see in the textbook pictures. That's what you see in that bumper sticker that has starting out with a monkey and you know he gets taller and taller, standing out and then he's a man. Next, there are problems with theistic evolution. Remember, I referred to that. God created the original uh, you know, creation, and then he left it all to evolve. This theory was attempted, I think, by well-meaning theologians and well-meaning Christians who thought creationism was in conflict with real science. Notably, one of the great theologians of uh, the last century, uh, Augustus Strong, who lived 1836 to 1921, wrote Strong's theology, propagated this very theory. And it was an addendum to his theology work later on in life. He first did the theology study, which was, is, is wonderful. And later on, when he assumed that evolution must be true, because everybody says it is in the academic world, he put this addendum in the introduction, in the beginning of his work of theology. 
God created the original matter and then let it kind of evolve. But that flies in the face of what God's word clearly teaches. Psalm 100, verse 3, know you not that the Lord, he is God, it is he that made us, not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make God, again, plural, let us make God in our image, the Trinity. After our likeness, we are trinities. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, not in the image of some one cell creature that, that began to develop into a multi-cell creature that began to develop, and not in that at all. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. In Genesis 2, 21, and the Lord God, first surgery in the Bible, first surgery in the Bible, God created, uh, uh, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. First anesthesia in the Bible. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh thereof. And the rib which the Lord had God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. The, the bone and flesh he took from man created a woman. In Mark 10, 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And those words, if you have a red letter Bible, are in red, which means Jesus spoke those words. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, word was with God, word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created that are in the heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, and some believe those are angelic beings. All things, listen to this, were made by, through him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, which means all things are held together, all things are, are continue. So there's a problem with theistic evolution, a big one. Everything reproduced after its own kind. Didn't reproduce something else through a process of mutation and time. There's a problem with mutations. They're the result of errors in the DNA function. To quote a specialist about DNA, the re- and by the way, let me see. Let me make sure of this. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure of this. I thought it was the guy who actually discovered DNA, part of it, who discovered DNA. Um, Anyhow, he is a scientist. He's a specialist. The result is likely to be harmful with an estimated 70% of amino acid polymorphisms that have damaging effects. He said most mutations are damaging and the remainder being either neutral or marginally beneficial due to the damaging effects that mutations can have on genes. Organisms have mechanisms such as DNA, listen to this, to prevent or correct mutations by reverting the mutated sequence back to the original state. You hear what he's saying? When a mutation does take place, almost three-fourths of the time, it's, it's, it's a hurtful thing, not a helpful, beneficial thing. And in the remaining times, the DNA structure will try to revert or reverse that and turn it back into what it was originally supposed to be. Another quote from Theodosius Dobzhansky. What's with these scientists? I haven't found one that was, you know, like John Smith or Bill Jones. Or Here's what he said. And he's an evolutionist. He's an evolutionist, not a creationist. Mutation alone, uncontrolled by natural selection, would result in the breakdown and eventual extinction of life, not in adaptive or progressive evolution. 
Okay. Guess what? I believe in creationism, but guess what? Creationism and evolution are both theories. You say, no, preacher. Creationism is science, not according to the scientific method. I'm just going by the definition. They're both theories. Neither one can be proven in a laboratory. Neither one can be reproduced. And that's what it would take to meet the criteria of the scientific proof. So that means both of them have to be believed in by faith. For those who believe in the word of God, creation is a fact accomplished and recorded by God himself. There are problems with the fossil record. Charles Darwin recognized that the earth's rock does not reveal the long-sought intermediate varieties, uh, complete lack of transitional fossils. This perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. He said that. Hardcore evolutionist Richard Dawkins, you've heard of him. Richard Dawkins added, it is as though... They were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists. There's a problem with carbon dating. Do you know they have carbon dated fish that are still alive to be hundreds of thousands of years old? I would say that's an issue. So here's what we know. Here's what we know. The universe had a beginning. Both creationists and evolutionists alike believe that. There is no fossil record or missing links to support the theory of evolution. I've quoted from evolutionists. I've quoted from creationists. The simplest of cells is incredibly complex, indicating a great cause for such a magnificent effect. Remember that last week, cause and effect? There must be a designer for all designs in the universe. Forensic science demands that. You don't have this complicated design that just spontaneously uh, came into being by its own power. You have to have a designer. And, And both theories require faith. One starts with God, the other with, oh, well, who knows, whatever. Okay, here's the guy, Nobel Prize winning biologist, contributed to the discovery of DNA, Francis Crick, and I'm almost through now. I won't get this quote. This is the guy who discovered DNA, one of them. An honest man armed with the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to almost be a miracle. Really? So many are the conditions which would have to have been satisfied to get it going. It appears to have been a miracle. One day, Geisler, Dr. Geisler, who's a, who's a creationist, was in a conference, and they, they go around debating these on the college campuses. And so uh, one student was asking him questions, and, and, and he, said, um, he said, Dr. Geisler, I, I am a Christian, but I believe in theistic evolution. Do you think that a, that a Christian can believe in theistic evolution? Dr. Geisler said, yeah, I suppose a Christian can believe. I've heard of Christians that believe in a lot of weird things. I guess you can if you want to. But there is no proof for it. So it's all a matter of faith. If you want to believe in evolution, you've got to believe that nothing was the origin for everything. That matter somehow came into being out of nothing. And then inert matter became living matter somehow. And it progresses and increases until it gets to the point of human life, folks, that takes more faith, in my opinion, 
then believing Almighty God said, let there be, and there was. And besides that, the really insidious thing here is if people can discredit Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, why can't they discredit John chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3? If there is no God who created us to be accountable to him, then we're just another animal. You have friends who believe that, and so do I. It's our job to try to let them know there's a God in heaven who gave them life, who loves them, and gave his only son to die for them on the cross so they could have everlasting life. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. If you're here this morning and you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, there was a time when you prayed and asked the Lord to be your Savior come into your life to radically change you and you know that you've done that with every head bowed, with every eye closed, would you just raise your hand for just a moment as a testimony? I know there was a time when I received Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Put your hand up real high. God bless you. Thank you. Not every hand could go up and I appreciate your honesty. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure you're not sure of your relationship with the God who created everything that is, then I'm going to ask you right now to consider putting your faith not in a bunch of amino acids, not in a bunch of single-cell amoeba. I'm going to ask you to put your faith and trust in Almighty God who transcends everything that we see around us, who is greater than the all, all of the universe, who spoke and, and all creation came into existence, who formed and fashioned us in his own image. If you'd like him to be your savior, then I'm going to say a prayer. And I want you just to pray to God in your own heart. And, and, and God will know what you're saying. God will know if you're sincere or not. But here's what you need to pray. Something like this. You need to say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that one day I am going to die and stand before you. I believe that Jesus Christ was your son, your only begotten son. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe the Bible when it says he was buried and he rose again after three days and three nights. And today in this place, I want to put my faith in a God who loved me that much that he would give his son for me. In a God who gave me life to begin with, I want to put my faith and my trust and my confidence Please, save me right now. With every head still bowed for another moment or two, if you just now prayed that prayer in your own heart, in your own life, would you just slip your hand up? I won't embarrass you. Just slip it up for a moment. I just prayed that prayer, preacher. I meant it with all my heart. Hold it up real high for just a moment. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Anyone else besides these? Anyone else? Our Father, we thank you so much for loving us this much. We thank you for giving us life and everlasting life by grace through faith. And I pray your blessings upon these who prayed that prayer. I pray that they would let us know, that they would be willing to share the fact that they put their faith in Christ, confessing you before others. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one verse because we've got a couple more things to do. We're going to baptize. That's going to be a lot of fun here in a minute. We're going to have Team Jordan come up. They're getting ready to go Tuesday to Jordan to minister to Syrians. So for those of you that prayed and asked the Lord to be a Savior, for those of you that maybe didn't raise your hand but you did or some of you who should have but didn't, I'm going to ask you to come to the the front in this one verse and and fill out a card and just say, you know what, I prayed or I'd like to pray or maybe you've got something on your heart or mind. Maybe you want to be baptized, whatever it is. As we sing, the praise team sings. Come on right now.